As we get into the scriptures here, uh, last couple weeks we've been doing this conversation called Unrecognizable, where we reflect on biblical stories where people didn't recognize Jesus and what that means. And we won't do a big recap, but we've been through Mary in the garden because she had assumptions of death. We've been through uh, Peter on the boat recognizing Jesus because she chose to or because he chose to obey and remember the stories of the faithfulness of Jesus. We looked at two weeks ago, that was last week, we looked two weeks ago um, at those walking on the road to Emmaus and how Jesus opened the scriptures to help them see him. And when they understood the Bible in the right way, they began to recognize Jesus and the story of how it led up to him. So this week, we are going to talk about the probably outside of Jesus most uh, famous or infamous, depending on what part of his life you look at, uh, character in the New Testament. And, uh, and so we're going to look at the life of, of Saul or Paul. And before we have this debate, Ian and I were talking earlier, just so you know, I'm going to go back and forth between these two names, this guy named Saul and, and Paul. And here's a great preaching story. A great preaching story says that Saul persecuted the church, and then he met Jesus, and then he became Paul. And wow, he was, the transformation was so incredible that even his name changed. I hate to tell you that's a little bit of a myth. The transformation is real, um, but it wasn't a Peter moment where, where Peter's name was Simon, and Jesus says to him, Simon, I'm going to call you Peter the Rock because I'm going to build my church on you. And Jesus renames Peter. That's not really what happened here. So just so you know, this is so that you can be this you know, prideful Bible scholar um, and, and hopefully don't ever use knowledge to look down on other people. That was sarcasm. But... Paul is a Greek and Roman word or name that would have been much more welcomed in Greek and Roman society. And Saul was a very Jewish name uh, that was linked to all the things that you're going to see in the history of Israel in just a moment. And so, so what almost certainly happened, what we're told in Acts 13 is just that this guy named Saul was also known as Paul. And then when he's writing to all of his uh, Greek and Roman area churches, he signs it Paul because people would have been more welcoming to that name. A guy with the name, we hate to say it, but a guy with the name of Paul would have had a higher chance of getting um, an audience with a king or a leader than a guy with the Jewish name of Saul. And so he uses both out of wisdom to be able to accomplish his, his goals and tasks. And the, and the scriptures uh, kind of see, see that after Acts 13, they just call him Paul and they go with it. But it's not some massive transformation that involved his name. The transformation involved something way, way, way deeper. So let's look at this guy. So when, when Saul meets Jesus, I'm letting the cat out of the bag here, uh, one of the first things that happens is he says the question, who are you, Lord? And so we might be thinking that the moment that we're about to look at, when Saul meets Jesus and doesn't know who he is, that that's the moment that Paul was not able to recognize Jesus. But Paul was not able to recognize Jesus long before that. And, and this is about all you need to know. That's Acts 8, verse 1. And like I said, this is about all you need to know. Saul approved of their killing him. The hymn is Stephen, a follower of Jesus. And what we get is we get this guy named Saul who enters the story of the early church, and he is a Pharisee, highly trained, highly educated, lover of God, biblically motivated, 
from the Hebrew Scriptures who wanted to eradicate the church. This is Acts 1. And so after this moment, or Acts 8, 1, after this moment, what we're told is that there was this huge persecution that broke out. And what you need to know is what, uh, what is mentioned about Saul. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged both men and women and put them in prison. So Saul, if, uh, and, and here's, here's what we find out the next chapter, all right? This is just the, the beginning of the story of this man who was really just seeking to destroy the church. Meanwhile, we're told there was a little gap talking about some other things in the story that were happening with the early church. But meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, essentially warrants for arrest, okay? He asked them so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, so cool, by the way, that the early church followers were called the way, the early, the early disciples of Jesus. Jesus was the way. It was always capitalized, like followers of the way, Jesus was the way to experience the fullness of God, but also the way of life that, ex- that uh, expressed God's heart the most fully. I love that name, followers of the way. They belonged to the way. If he found anybody, men or women, didn't matter, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Just pause there for a second. If we're looking at Paul writing his own resume, he is citing all of these things, and he is saying, highly motivated, natural leader, problem solver, willing to take initiative. This guy was willing to go from town to town because he was such a go-getter, so enthusiastic that he takes initiative upon himself to go into the high priest and say, hey, I'm working on a personal project. It involves getting rid of every one of these little Jesus people, these Christ followers, these people who claim that Jesus was the Messiah. And so, so Paul is, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's incredibly passionate about what he's doing. He's very driven, as we'll look at later. And here's what happens in the midst of all of this. As he neared Damascus on his journey, all right, suddenly a light, it's always light, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Take note of that. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Take note of that. Very important for later in our story. Now, get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So, so Paul's walking along. For some reason in my head, I always imagine him riding a horse and getting knocked off it, but I don't think that's what we're told here. Um, so he's walking along, and, and this bright flash of light hits him. He falls to the ground. He's completely overwhelmed by this voice without necessarily a figure, or at least they don't see the figure. We're told it was clearly and unquestionably the voice of Jesus, and maybe Paul sees the presence of Jesus standing there. Others hear it, but they don't see anything. And he says, you're persecuting me. Why are you hurting me? Paul doesn't know who the me is yet. So he asks for clarification, he gets it, and then he's told, go to the city and you'll be told what you must do next. All right, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up uh, from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So Paul is, or Saul is blind now. They led him by hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. 
So this is our story of someone who did not recognize Jesus. Three days, eating and drinking nothing, starving, darkness. The highest of the high becomes the lowest of the low. Why was blindness a result of Paul's encounter with Jesus? I believe it's because blindness had been the reason that he had become what he had become in the first place. Paul was blinded to who Jesus was, but in a unique way for us, based on all of the stories that we've looked at, recognizing Jesus for Paul meant recognizing what God was really about, because Paul didn't understand and know what God was really about. He thought he did. He was wrong. And, and Paul was, was blind to Jesus, and for his sake, it's a good thing that he was so wrong about what God was about, because in the Jesus kingdom, enemies to the movement become missionaries for the movement, right? In, in this Jesus kingdom, murderers become peacemakers. Those who were once hungry for power eventually become those most eager to give it up for the sake of God's kingdom. This is glorious stuff we're about to hit. It's, it's incredible. And when Paul recognizes Jesus, all the things that matter to him completely get turned upside down. His identity changes. The only thing that doesn't change is Paul's drivenness. At the beginning of the story, Paul is driven. And, and we're going to do just a fun little survey in here of, of Paul's own telling of, of how the story works. Paul's driven by prestige. Paul's driven by certainty. Paul is driven by righteousness, he thought. Paul is driven by holy zeal and a passion for God. Paul was driven by hatred of God's enemies. So the question for us to just start with and just sit with for a few seconds is what is driving you today? When you think about the reasons that you do what you do and that you go about your day, what is it that you're driven by? Uh, my son Kai and Judah and Sarai, they all started school this week, but in Kylan's uh, virtual class, one of the things that they did as they went around was uh, the teacher asked them, what did, you, uh, what did you do this summer that you really enjoyed? Or that you did a lot of, I guess. And Kylan said, I ran a lot because he loves to run. And, uh, and so he, he said, you know, um, I, I got out a lot. And he, and he does go out regularly. And he and Judah are both driven because, uh, because they enjoy the challenge of running. They enjoy being outside. And his teacher responded and said, I run too, but not because of that. <laughs> She said, I run because it's exercise, and I need to do exercise. So we all have different motivations for what we do and why we do it. And so I want you to just think, what right now would you say drives you? Is it you're driven by the need to survive right now because <laughs> you're in survival mode? Are you driven by the desire to um, often look the part of a healthy strong person slash Christian, the way we present ourselves on social media or, or something? Are, are you driven by uh, the desire to have enough money so that you can live comfortably? Are you driven by the need to make sure that God knows how much you love God by doing all the right things? What, what is it that you're driven by? Maybe, you're, maybe you aren't driven by anything right now because you are in a season where you just feel lethargic and it's just exhausting and, uh, and it's really hard to even say, what, what drives me? I mean, 
what drives me is that if I don't go out and do my day, I guess I can't pay my mortgage or my rent. I don't know. I don't really have anything driving me. So, so I just want you to think about what the answer might be. But the, the fascinating thing is that most of the things that drive us, if we take the larger view, honestly, they're not that compelling. <laughs> most of the things that drive us to do what we do most days, when you look at it in the long term, at the end of our lives, whatever, they're just not that compelling. You can be driven to make a ton of money and then you die and you never use it. Or it just stays in your bank account and you thought you'd have enough and then you need more. You can be, be driven by the need to impress people and then you realize that the people that you're trying to impress don't know you or care about you. These are the things that happen in our lives. So, so most of the things, when we look at them from the broad scale that people and humans are driven by, are actually not all that motivating when it's said and done. Certainly not to get to the values of Jesus, except for one thing. And one thing is actually powerful enough to get us moving, to get us motivated. I mentioned that Paul was always driven, but after his uh, experience with Jesus, his motivation changed. Paul became driven by a grace-filled God that he met in Christ. He was driven by all of these other things, and after he met Jesus and sat in silence and darkness for days on end, trying to figure out who this, this Lord was that he had never encountered before, he emerges driven in a new way to live dynamically in the world and engage with society and connect with people because he had experienced a grace-filled God in Christ. So recognizing God in this way, recognizing Jesus and what that meant was completely transformative. I think it was transformative in a, a ton of ways, but I, I want to talk just about a couple that um, Bethany always tells me when I run this stuff by her that nobody cares about my words and they're not going to remember them. But... They're all peas. So the first thing that happened was Paul experienced transformed power. And what that meant was Paul's experience of transformed power moves from domination to servanthood. All right? So he goes from domination to servanthood and has a completely transformed experience of power. So this is going to be a little lightning bolt. So, so Paul has a completely a view of power that is about domination. Paul wants to accomplish things, and he doesn't mind walking over people, even killing people in order to achieve it. Okay? He, he wants so badly to, to be someone who... Um, who is, is seen as high and holy and, and demonstrative. But look at the reversal of power that happens. When Jesus comes and meets him, look at this. He comes and meets him, and the first thing that happens is this strong, very capable young man with, with good muscles and a, and a strong mind gets knocked to the ground. He gets knocked to the ground. And then... He says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Notice that. Two incredible moments that happen here. Number one, Jesus identifies with his disciples. Not why are you persecuting my disciples, but why are you persecuting me? If you want something that is really mystical and powerful to reflect on, think about the fact that when you interact with somebody or when someone interacts with you, in Jesus' mind, he's interacting with them. Why are you persecuting me? 
These aren't just my disciples. They are, they are part of me. I'm in them. When you do something to them or when they do something to you, it's doing something to me or it's me doing something to you. That is the re- weird, overwhelming mystery of Jesus. But the second thing that happens is that the script gets flipped because what he does is he all of a sudden calls himself the persecuted ones. God is identifying with the weak, with the powerless, and Saul, the powerful, is all of a sudden on the opposite end of the spectrum. Who are you? I am Jesus, he says, who you are persecuting. Jesus changes how power is seen. The the, the most powerful being in the world says, I'm being persecuted. You think that dominance is power? I will teach you what power is. And later, he says, when he meets, uh, when, when the Lord appears to this guy named Ananias, who eventually is the one who gives Saul sight, he says, I'll show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. I always thought that was a little vindictive of God, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that statement. And I've thought about it more and, and, and talked with others about it. And the more that I think about it, the more I realize that a statement like that is saying, I will show him what true power looks like. And it looks like suffering. It looks like laying your life down and servanthood. It does not look like domination. And Paul eventually learns this. And it's, and it's powerful. And again, I'm setting these things up real quick. And then we're going to zip through what Paul says about himself. And you're going to be able to choose how, how these things appear. And we're going to go through... Uh, through fairly, fairly quickly so that we can uh, sit in the scriptures at the end. So Paul's on this power trip, and everything gets flipped over. He loses all of his power. He gets a glimpse of what suffering is like. He becomes blind. He becomes um, not a leader. He becomes a follower, okay? All of these things are flipped over. The second thing that's transformed is uh, posture. Paul's posture gets transformed from one of pride to one of humility, and these are directly connected with each other. Let's use like a, a chair. There we go. Because a chair gives you good posture, right? So, so the posture of Paul moves from someone who he says, in, I am so righteous. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, you'll see in a moment. But it moves from, from pride to humility and understanding that the posture that you are to have in the world that reflects Jesus does not look like building yourself up with all of these things that you have going for you. Instead, it looks like considering others better than yourself. And the third thing is a, a transformed perspective. And this is the one, this is the one that uh, might make us the most uncomfortable. Because what he had to get, uh, what his perspective had to be transformed from was certainty about God. You can see why this might make us uncomfortable. But his perspective was all based on certainty about God. I know exactly how God works. I know what God believes. You know, God hates the same people I do. And it got moved from certainty about God to a deep desire to know God. So what does maturity look like in Paul's mind? Used to look like certainty about God. I have the scriptures memorized. I have all this figured out. And it shifts to something so much deeper. All my desires are to know God, to know who God is, to know personally, not by doing things for God, but being changed by God, all right? Um, 
Paul acted with absolute certainty, and he thought it was his right to be the judge and the jury and the executioner toward who eventually ended up being God's very people, who he thought he was defending. So I want you to, uh, to just sit with the idea of how uh, the, the moment, the reason that we want to talk about certainty for a minute is the moment that we become experts, all right, at, at Christianity, all right? The, the moment that we become experts is the moment that we move ourselves into the biblical category of Pharisees. And what that means is, is we think that we've got it figured out, and Jesus said, I came specifically in the book of Luke, I, Luke, I came for those who are sick, not for the ones who claim health. And so the moment that we say, we've got this God thing figured out fully, it's sealed up tight, no questions, no cracks, no problems, I know this, we open ourselves up to the very deep sin of pride and of missing the voice of God that comes from actually knowing God, not knowing about God, which are two very different things. The more we hold every belief about how God thinks with absolute certainty, the less humble we become. If you can do a graph. Certainty goes up. And and I mean certainty about God's views on everything. I don't mean certainty about certain things like the love of God and the constant and the presence of God. But I know God's views on X, Y, and Z. I have got this figured out. And now I am free to treat you however I want because I know what's right and you're wrong. This is, the, this is the world that we're living in right now. It happens in a, in a, gl- a global attitude. It happens in uh, the United States. And it very often happens among Christians who ought to be able to recognize the spirit of God in one another and have dynamic, loving, interesting conversations that don't say, oh, you question that, you're out of the club. This is a sin in the American church right now. Our quickness to write people off instead of having meaningful conversations our need for absolute certainty about a hundred different issues to have it figured out instead of a deeper desire to know and walk with God together and trust that the Spirit will continue to enlighten us. Whew. My grandfather was a pastor and a, de- and a denominational leader in the Church of the Brethren for many, many years. And before he died, we had, and I'm so thankful that email existed at this time and that you could make little folders because I have a folder of all of my conversations with my grandfather. He lived in Indiana. And... Uh, and near the end of his life, his mind stayed sharp all the way until the day that he died. And uh, near the end of his life, we were talking about my young pastoral ministry that I was just a couple years in, and, um, and he was retired, long retired, and he said, we were talking about our own faith journeys, and he said, you know what, I am less certain about so many things than I've ever been, and I am more at peace with Jesus than I have ever been. And I thought there's something about a posture like that. And it wasn't questioning the types of things that you might think. This wasn't about a deep life of doubt. This was about holding his understandings of having everything figured out with an open hand, understanding that God is bigger than us and that it's okay to rest in that. So there was beauty there. Uh, hmm. Perhaps we need to acknowledge that we can become so rigid in our beliefs about God and our behaviors of righteousness that we can no longer reflect the character of Jesus because of it, because we've lost touch with God. So we're going to do this very quickly, a minute each, but it's so worth it to sit. Just take a look at what Paul talks about when he talks about his own life. If someone thinks they've got reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Paul says, 
in almost an arrogant way, right? Like Paul never lost his edge, that's for sure. If someone thinks that you're confident in who you are and in your abilities, I can, I can trump you, he says. I can best you in it. I'm, listen to me. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to all of the laws. I'm going to add some stuff here to help you understand if you don't. Uh, of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that the first king of Israel came from, whose name was what? Saul. Great. Yes. So I came, I come from a lineage that has royalty, Saul says. As for, I was, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I kept everything in regard to the law. I was a Pharisee. I was an expert at following every rule. I was passionate, he says. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, faultless. But what, what were gains to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, everything's a loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ. Knowing about God? No, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. That is a word that I am not allowed to say during a public talk in Hebrew. He is using strong language here. I consider all of my accolades garbage compared to knowing the love of God through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ, yes, the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings. Look at this. Participate in the sufferings of God so that I might understand what it looks like to lay my own life down. That's what Paul is saying. It's incredible language. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead, trusting the promises of Jesus of life and resurrection one day. How about this from Galatians? You've heard of my previous way, how intensely I persecuted the church and tried to destroy it. Here's what I want you to notice. I was advancing. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son so that I might preach, immediately my response was not to consult any human being. So what you see here is, again, a different posture. He had been trained under one of the top... um, one of the top rabbis of his time. And so Paul says, when this happened, when I met Jesus, I actually stopped with the whole game of having somebody else tell me all the things. And I sat in darkness with Jesus. And I sat and listened. And he becomes transformed by knowing Christ. And actually what happens was he learns Christ's grace, not Christ's judgment in those moments. How about this one? In 1 Timothy Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted out. I acted in ignorance. The grace was poured out on me abundantly, the grace of our Lord, along with the faith and love. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, it's a saying. So what that means is he's not saying that I am the worst, Paul. He's saying that if we take the posture of humility of saying that I'm not going to rank myself above anybody else. If every Christian would take this posture, and it's not about beating yourself up. We can, we can blow this way out of proportion. It's not about saying, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible. That's not what we're getting at. But the idea of saying, God came for people like me, and by no means am I more holy than the next person along the road. That creates a posture where we can express the kingdom of love and humility. First Corinthians He comes and he says, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom, all right? I came in weakness with great fear and trembling. Now, remember, Paul was a gifted speaker. 
This was his bread and butter. And he says, I'm not going to rely on all of my human gifts. I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Some of us might think, did that mean it was a big miracle that he's talking about in this case? I'm not sure. I think he might come with the demonstration of the Spirit's power by simply talking about his own transformative journey. (laughs) That once I killed people for God, and now I'm laying my life down for God, for the sake of people. That's the Spirit's power. And maybe there were miraculous moments too. Lord knows there's plenty of them in the book of Acts that Paul was a part of. But there's such beauty there. And finally, look at his conviction about the presence of God. Not about having everything figured out factually, but he is convinced that nothing can separate us from Christ Jesus our Lord. There's such beauty in the type of conviction that Paul has at the end of his life versus the type of conviction that led him to persecute the church at the beginning of his life. So, we ask ourselves, no huge to-do list this week, all right? Nothing, nothing major, no big, here's, here's what you have to do, five points. No, the question for this week is, what might a grace-filled God drive you to do and be this week? If, a, if, if you recognized the heart of God that is revealed in Jesus, if that was how you understood God fully, if that is how you understand God fully, what might a grace-filled week drive you to do and be this week? What kind of a person will you become knowing the transformative power of Jesus, knowing that God is not vindictive but full of grace? God is not seeking to smite you but instead seeking to invite you in to walk together to be changed, and then to love the world well. What might it look like for you to move from certainty about God to a deeper desire to know God that will change your convictions from pride to humility, from a need to to be in control to a desire to serve? These are beautiful, beautiful moments. So if that was your motivation for living, um, how would you hold your power? How would you hold your posture? How would you hold your perspective? Let's just sit and pray for a moment, and what we're going to do is we're going to just have a moment for uh, personal, almost confession during these moments of just acknowledging before God what's real and what our hearts are. So I invite you just to close your eyes and just walk through this with me. Lord, we right now, if it's helpful uh, to have a posture of our hands even open on our seat, on our, on our lap, we, we want to release the things that have been driving us, whatever those might be. We want to acknowledge areas of pride, areas of wanting to control, areas of being so sure of things that we no longer are listening to your voice. And Lord, we want to hear you speaking We want to hear and we need to hear your words, I don't condemn you. We need to hear your words, I came for the ones like you. We need to hear your words, go and be well. We need to hear your words, my grace is sufficient for you. So we just receive that right now. We confess (laughs) that we often lose our way even with how we understand and view you and our faith but we want to receive the grace that is always available to us, Lord. So I pray right now 
that you would continue to open our hearts, open the eyes of our hearts as we sang at the beginning of this whole gathering to receive the grace that your character shows over and over and over again. Thank you for the grace-filled life that we are empowered to live and your presence with us. Amen.